You, Max, will provide protection for Patrick, but also for other important humans who will come into this revolutionary mission. The enemy will ever be lurking about, both in human and other forms. I'll be ready at all times. Revolutionary? It is time to birth a new nation. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, Season 2, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. On today's episode two of season two, we will bring you chapter one from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. And our author friend Jenny L. Cody has some really special insights to share about how Handel's famous oratorio, Messiah, could have actually had strong ties to Patrick Henry. We'll hear all about it a little bit later when we take a trip to Jenny's Corner. And right now, since we're waxing musically, uh, take note Uh-oh. that I am conducting myself oh, accordingly oh, yeah. by passing the baton really? for chapter one to three four-legged friends. Oh, no. See what I, I did there? Say. One, two, three, four-legged friends. I think we have it. <laughs> who shall now toot their own horns... Make it stop! ...with no strings attached. <laughs> oh, come uh, on, lad! Please welcome one, Max, two, Liz, three, Nigel. Yes, thank you. I say, this announcer fellow, is he always so, uh, what's the word, uh, clever? No. Witty? No. Charming? Oh, heavens no. Well, no matter. Thank you, sir, for the absolutely inharmonious segue. Oh, <laughs> it was nothing. Indeed. Well, off you go then, old chap. Well, actually, no, lad. He'll probably hang around. He'll be reading the chapter, you know. He does a better job with that, because he has a better writer. Yes, Miss Jenny's writing does indeed take the biscuit. But I'm afraid all that musical talk has really hit a sore spot with me, uh, quite literally. But, Mousy, you like music. Music, yes, but... That. Aye. Uh, plus, I recently had an unfortunate experience during rehearsal for the Messiah, involving the timpani, them big kettle drums. But, monsieur, you play the violin, no? Yes, well, you see, I was standing on the timpani to get a closer look at the musical score, when suddenly... The kettle drummer started drumming, eh, Mousy? <laughs> Indeed. The chap made one good mallet strike, and suddenly I was airborne, headed for the mezzanine section. Oh, boy. Them are the cheap seats, too, you know. Oh, you poor dear. Were you all right? Well, let's just say I shall deliver the news today from a standing position. But, for the most part, I was able to merely brush it off. In other words, you tried to be natural, even though you ended up a little flat? <laughs> <laughs> uh, told you he'd hang around. I'm sorry, Nigel. I just got on a roll with the musical puns. 
Well, frankly, I wish I, too, were on a roll, or some sort of soft cushion. <sighs> and perhaps I was a tad bit terse with you, too, old boy. Well, it's easy to be short with others when your tail hurts. Aye, and it's easy to be short with people when you're a mouse, period. <laughs> well, to keep this short, Monsieur Announcer, do what you do best. Read The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. Comprenez-vous? Uh, we. Part 1. Fiddling Around Chapter 1. Down to the Letter London, England, March 23, 1743 Bravo, mon ami! Liz exclaimed to Nigel. The little mouse was beaming. Tonight's performance was magnifique! The animals were gathered in the home of George F. Handel, following the London premiere of his new oratorio, Messiah, at Covent Garden Theatre. Handel had long since retired for the night, so Max, Liz, Kate, Al, and Nigel quietly made their way to Handel's composing room per Clary's instructions. Their Italian stick-bug friend, Shandeli, had also turned in, exhausted from the day's events. The Order of the Seven had successfully completed their mission of helping Handel compose the most important piece of music that would ever be written. The mission was so vital it had even entailed revisiting the life and passion of Christ with a trip through the Iamosphere. A celebration was in order now that the mission was complete. Candles illuminated the room where the magic of Messiah had come to pass. Max and Kate brought meat scraps from the butcher shop across the street, which was their assigned station for the Handel mission. Liz brought an assortment of cheeses, including Nigel's favorite, a sharp white cheddar. Clary delivered a sweet array of biscuits and cookies, and Al just enjoyed everyone's contributions. Thank you, my pet. It was one of the highlights of my life, Nigel replied, with a paw tenderly touching his mouse-sized violin. Not only was Handel himself pleased, but the King of England was pleased enough to stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. And the King of Kings was most pleased of all, applauding your faithful work, Clary interjected. Clary, a sweet white lamb, was one of the two spiritual being members of the Order of the Seven animal team. She could take any shape or form and served as a guide and messenger from the other spiritual being and team leader, Gilliman. Tonight, she was dressed in the finery of a proper British lady, wearing a silk dress that matched her blue eyes and a fashionable white wig with a single curl dangling onto her shoulder. She had attended the concert as Lady Clary. Nigel's eyes welled up behind his golden spectacles, and he wiped away a tear of joy while nodding with a smile. He had been given the honor of helping to secretly inspire Handel with his mouse-sized violin while the famed composer slept. Indeed, my dear, to know that I had pleased the supreme maestro was the most important outcome of the whole evening. Aye, he weren't pleased just with the whole evening, but with the whole mission, then, Max added. Clary, lass, I assume we'll be leaving the butcher shop and heading to our next mission soon. Al's eyes got as wide as the salami slices that were stuffed in his mouth. Leave the butcher shop? He mumbled before swallowing hard and picking up the last slice. 
Can't we make this mission last a while longer? Or at least stay in London for the next one? I'd hate to think of what would happen to that poor butcher without us there to keep his shop clear of beasties. Kate shook her head at the ever-hungry feline, who was a greater threat to the butcher than the rats. It shall be thoughtful of you to think about the poor butcher, Al, she remarked in a sarcastic tone, tapping Al's belly. Always thinking with your stomach, Max murmured. Clarie giggled. Be careful what you wish for, Al. You just may get it. Al grinned and held up the salami. I'm up for the challenge, lass. I'm glad to hear that, Al, Clarie said with an impish grin, reaching for the round piece of savory meat. Then may I have this last slice, please? Al clung to the salami with both paws. Clarie frowned and tugged against the stubborn cat, who held on to the meat with all his might. Drop the salami, Albert, Liz scolded. Do not be so selfish. Al's lower lip quivered as he reluctantly let go of his prize. Thank you, Al, Clarie said as she pried the salami from his paws. She then placed on the floor the program from tonight's Messiah concert, which contained the libretto, or words, from the composition. Clarie placed the salami on the O of the words sacred oratorio. Alas, the salami be savory, not sacred, Al protested. Can't you see that it belongs in me mouth and not on the aura oreo? Clarie ignored Al's complaint and sat down on the floor with the animals, her blue dress spread out around them. She grinned, wrapping the dangling curl from her white wig around her finger as the animals gathered in close around the libretto. Suddenly the salami began to ripple as if it were being cooked. Liz glanced over at the others and smiled. She knew what was about to happen. Time for us to see Gilliman, no? Suddenly the salami bubbled and turned into a red wax seal, imprinted with the words, Order of the Seven. Clarie held out one hand to the seven seal and placed her other hand on Al's back. Would you like to do the honors, Al? Al looked questioningly at Clarie. You know how nervous I get going in there, lass, but seeing how me salami made the seal, maybe the inside won't be as scary this time. The orange cat timidly walked across the libretto and held up a paw over the wax seal, gazing around with uncertainty at the others. You can do it, old boy, Nigel cheered. Just swipe that iron claw across the seal and break it. Al popped out his iron claw, and a goofy grin appeared on his face. <laughs> me secret weapon. He closed one eye and got ready to break the seal. Here goes nothing. As Al's claw broke the seal, a beam of light seventy stories high encircled the animals. The iamosphere swirled around them with a rushing wind, and the animals were frozen in place by the blazing light and supernatural power of this time portal. They tingled from head to toe as they saw the moving panels of scenes from all points in history playing before their eyes. The Iamosphere was the unseen realm of how the Maker observed time, past, present, and future, all happening at once. As the wind began to subside and the blinding light to diminish, standing there before the animals was their wise leader, Gilliman.
Welcome, everyone, the majestic mountain goat greeted them. Gilliman never failed to make the animals immediately feel at ease with his calming voice and warm blue eyes. This has been a date to remember. Well done, all. And to you, Nigel, I give my heartfelt congratulations. Nigel bowed with his foot extended and a paw draped humbly across his chest. Thank you, my dear friend. I dare say March 23rd is a date I shall not soon forget. Gilliman grinned broadly. Indeed, you most certainly will not. This date will soon be punctuated by another pivotal moment in history. You are about to embark on a mission that will connect more dates and layers of history from previous assignments than you could ever have imagined. Bonsoir, Guillemon, Liz greeted him with eyes full of expectation. How so? The wise leader smiled with that familiar twinkle in his eye, filled with veiled anticipation and knowledge he carefully imparted to the Order of the Seven on a need-to-know basis. Gilliman didn't know everything that would happen in the future, but was granted far more insight than he was allowed to divulge. Let us review your newly completed mission. He pointed to various scenes from Handel's life, which swirled in the panels behind him. Handel playing musical instruments as a young boy. Handel as a young man walking through the Forum in Rome, where he purchased the star coin and then composed his first work. Handel being passed over by King George II as master of the king's music. Handel receiving the libretto for Messiah, which Liz had helped Charles Jennings to write. Nigel playing the violin in Handel's ear as he slept. The Dublin premiere of Messiah and the scene from tonight's London premiere. Kate pointed to the last panel. There be ye and Clary, sitting in the audience with David Henry. Indeed, little Kate, and I am pleased to let you know you will continue to be assigned to David Henry for a time before you are moved to another key human in this mission. But he has not yet been born, Gilliman replied. You and Max did well to arrange for David Henry's marriage to Mary Cave, which led to his position with the Gentleman's Magazine here in London. As you know, each mission involves helping one primary human to fulfill his or her life's purpose, but there are many supporting humans who need to do their part in fulfilling the Maker's ultimate plan. You, little Kate, are always crucial working behind the scenes with these supporting humans. Another scene appeared of David Henry sitting down at his desk. He lit a candle and set out a quill, paper, and ink. And tonight he is writing a letter that will impact the primary human for your next mission. Who, Gilliman? Max asked. You always kill me with your suspense, lad. Gilliman touched his hoof to another panel, and a wooded scene appeared with a little boy sitting next to a creek holding a fishing pole. The animals gathered around the panel to stare intently at the sandy, red-headed, barefoot young boy. He just sat there, staring at his line, not moving. The birds were singing, and he would occasionally look up to the trees and listen for a moment, but then return his gaze to his motionless fishing pole. Um, Gilliman, the lad ain't doing anything, Max noted. 
wondering what could be so important about this boy. Gilliman didn't reply, but kept his gaze fixed on the scene. Au contraire, he is observing everything around him, Liz suggested, studying the boy closely. Gilliman smiled. Precisely. The brilliant French cat's tail curled slowly up and down as she studied the scene. And, if I am not mistaken, the boy is sitting next to a black willow. Ah, a black willow! Oh, those be deadly! Al cried with a paw up to his mouth. Gilliman, we need to jump in there and save the lad from that dreaded beastie. The worried cat looked over at Max and shoved him forward. Max here is perfect for the job. Go save him, lad. Black Willow, Albert, not Black Widow, Liz corrected him. The Salix nigra is the largest species of willow tree in North America. It provides many benefits to humans and the animal kingdom, like charcoal for gunpowder and nectar and pollen for honeybees. Liz was an expert in flora and fauna and had long adored gardening as her favorite hobby. <laughs> Daft kitty, it be a tree, not a spider, Max corrected, bonking Al on the head. And ye be as brave as ever, volunteering me for the dangerous part of the mission. Al grinned a toothy, sheepish grin. Well, it still sounds dangerous with bees buzzing about. <sighs> You're enormous flying beasties, Max answered with a sarcastic tone, referring to the first time he met Al in a forest hiding from bees. I say, and if I'm not mistaken, that looks like the colony of Virginia, Nigel noted, pointing to the scene. I remember our time there with great fondness, venturing in the woods with Pocahontas. Liz perked up. Oui, it is Virginia, and I would surmise that the little boy is none other than Patrick Henry. Well done, Liz and Nigel, Gilliman said. It is indeed Virginia, and that is David Henry's little cousin, Patrick Henry. You two will soon depart to join him on the banks of the Tottopotomy Creek, along with Max. Sorry to be parted from you, me love, Kate said, nudging Max with her nose. I'm sure it won't be for too long, then. See, you be going to the boy next to the Black Willow on that Hippopotamus Creek, Al said, slapping Max with the back of his paw. Gilliman, ain't I going too? I like fishermen. Peter! were the best human I ever had. Totopotomy Creek, named for an Indian chief, Al, Clarie corrected him. I thought you wanted to stay here in London. I said to be careful what you wish for. Clarie is right, Al, for you shall go to live with another boy here in London, Gilliman answered, pointing to another scene from the life of Handel. The composer leaned over to speak to a young boy dressed in the finest red silk breeches and coat Al had ever seen. Who is that lad? Al asked. Do he like to fish? That is the next king of England, King George III, Gilliman replied. I do not know if he likes to fish himself, but you will suffer no lack of food with the bounty in the palace. Your mission will primarily be to gather intelligence. Max snickered and whispered to Nigel, The kitty needs all the intelligence he can get. <laughs> How does he do it, I wonder? Nigel chuckled back, shaking his head good-humoredly at their dear friend. While not the brightest member of the team, 
Al nevertheless gained access to places and information that made the others marvel. The old boy always gets the posh palace assignments, Pharaoh of Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and now the King of England. Al said up excitedly, I get to live with the king? Hooray, another palace, he cheered, but then frowned. I'll miss me last, though. He enveloped Liz in a smothering hug. I shall miss you too, Albert, Liz struggled to say. She wriggled free of Al's embrace. Uh, Gilliman, uh, what exactly are we supposed to do with young Patrick Henry? Gilliman walked over to look Liz in the eye. Liz, Patrick Henry, will primarily be your human, and your mission will be to help him find his voice. His voice will alter the course of history, although you may not know it. I have been preparing you for this one assignment for centuries. You will delight in seeing exactly how, as time goes on. Liz's golden eyes widened, and she placed a paw over her racing heart. I am honored, Gilliman, and I shall guide my Henry to the greatness for which he is destined. I have long had a feeling about this boy, ever since I first read his father's letter to David, announcing his birth. His name means noble ruler of the house. But uh, what house will he rule? Gilliman smiled and turned to Max, not answering Liz's question. He liked for his team to figure things out for themselves. You, Max, will provide protection for Patrick— but also for other important humans who will come into this revolutionary mission. The enemy will ever be lurking about, both in human and other forms. Aye, Max readily responded. The black fur bristled along his stocky little body, his short tail was erect, and his triangular ears were pointed up, alert to the slightest hint of danger. A low growl entered his throat. I'll be ready at all times. Revolutionary? Whatever do you mean, old chap? Nigel wanted to know. It is time to birth a new nation, and I'm afraid yours and Liz's homelands will be on opposite sides of the conflict for a time, shared Gilliman. But this is nothing new, Liz quipped. When are England and France ever not at war, mon ami? It is more unusual for our homelands not to be fighting than engaged in battle. Hear, hear, Nigel agreed, preening his whiskers. What a devilish shame that the humans can't be as civilized as we animals. This time the war will be different, Gilliman suggested. Nigel, you shall begin your mission with Patrick Henry, but will eventually escort an Englishman back here to London. But first you will assist him with a science experiment that will impact the outcome of the war. Dr. Benjamin Franklin is a printer and an inventor. Jolly good! An Englishman, a printer, and an inventor? I say, I already like this mission, Nigel enthused. I shall be high as a kite with this thrilling assignment. Gilliman shared a knowing look with Clarie. You have no idea, my little friend. His experiment will be a key to unlock the door to another nation. As usual, 
We will also call upon you to be a go-between for communications on this mission. Clarie and I will fulfill uh, numerous roles as well in the coming years. Liz gazed at young Patrick Henry and his fishing pole. Kilimon, you mentioned that this mission will involve multiple layers of dates and history from our previous missions. Uh, what do you mean? Gilliman once more put his hoof up to a series of panels that swirled into view. There were scenes from past missions with Noah, Joseph, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Jesus, the disciples, Paul, Constantine, and even the little monk, Telemachus. Your new mission has been foreshadowed throughout every one of these past missions. But there are two historical layers of special importance, the mountain goat explained. He once more touched the panels, and a series of them came into view. I say, there's the Roman centurion Marcus Antonius, when he commissioned the Libertas statue to be carved back in Jerusalem, Nigel exclaimed. Since the Romans would carve Libertas with a liberty-loving cat at her feet, Liz stood in as the cat model for the sculptor, while Marcus's wife, Julia, posed as the goddess. Al leaned over and put his head dreamily on Liz's small frame. "'You be the most beautiful model ever, me love. I think we should call it the Lizardus statue.' Oh, "'Merci, cher Albert,' Liz replied with her shy smile. "'And there I see the Libertas statue when Marcus's lad, Armandus, sent her to Rome with his family on the ship,' Max added, pointing to another scene many years later. The animals watched the scene of Armandus's two little boys, Julius and Theophilus, running down the dock in Caesarea after talking with Paul. Al caught a glimpse of another scene, still many more years further in time, Sure, and there be Julius Antonius meeting our ship when his mum, Bella, and his nephew brought the Lizertas statue from Rome to Gaul. Al licked his chops as he saw himself trotting down the dock toward a basket of fish. Julius hugged his nephew, Leonidas, and placed his Roman centurion's helmet on the boy's head. Leonidas went chasing after Al, wielding a fish as if it were a sword. Gaul! Now finally known by humans as France, Liz thought out loud, her tail swishing back and forth as her mind was racing. There is meaning behind this statue, no? Libertas, the goddess of liberty. She represents freedom and hope for life lived in the pursuit of happiness. Freedom beginning in Jerusalem and spreading around the globe. Liz wrinkled her brow as she thought this through. Suddenly it dawned on her, Liberty is also coming here to America. Is that right, Kilimon? But from France? I do not yet understand this. Precisely, Liz, uh, but you will, with time, Gilliman answered the curious cat. In order to figure out the importance of the Libertas connection, you will first need to figure out the importance of the Plutarch connection. Another scene came into view with Liz sitting on the desk of the ancient Greek historian Plutarch. He was writing a series of books called Parallel Lives about the way good and bad influences impacted the lives of famous Greek and Roman men. Back in Rome, Gilliman himself had given Liz the assignment to ensure that Plutarch wrote about one particular Roman, 
named Cato, in his book. Liz studied the scene of herself as the soft glow of the oil lamp danced off her black fur. Spread across Plutarch's desk were rolls of fresh parchment and scrolls of his work. A small ivory figurine of the Greek goddess Nike, or Winged Victory, also sat on his desk. I remember how you made that big winged victory statue last come to life when we were traveling with Paul in Greece, Max recalled. Oui, and you told me we would see that statue again in my beloved France, Liz added. Her head was spinning with the many scenes and layers of history to connect in her mind. Gilliman, there is so much to try to put together, no? Gilliman nodded. As I said... There are many layers of history and past missions coming together for the mission ahead. The Maker leaves his mark on every page of history, doesn't he? Even on the pages of those who don't follow him. Why do you think it is called his story? The mountain goat put his hoof onto a scene of an eleven-year-old boy crying over the loss of his father. Each of us will be witness to a unique point in history because of a unique generation of world leaders. Most of them are just children now, or have not yet even been born. Take note how important one generation of children can be. Marvel at each child, and the power they have to change the history of the world, for the good or bad of all. You will see that what goes into the first part of life goes throughout all of life. Gilliman gazed at the boy who sat alone, wiping his eyes. It is time for me to leave you and attend to one of those children now. Oh, the poor dear, Kate said sadly. Who's the wee lad, Gilliman? His name is George. George Washington, Gilliman replied, catching the perplexed look on Liz's face. Liz... You will connect all the dots for this mission down to the letter, just as you always do. When the time is right, I will give you the clues you need. For the moment, just focus on Plutarch, and remember what I told you long ago. With that, he stepped into the scene with young George Washington, and was gone from the Iamosphere as the scene faded from view. Liz returned her gaze to the scene of Plutarch, writing at his desk. She watched her image lean over and read what Plutarch had just penned. Quoting Alexander the Great, Remember, upon the conduct of each depends the fate of all. Never had this been more true for the Order of the Seven. David Henry lit the candle on his desk and reached for his Bible. As he flipped through the Old Testament, then the new, he smiled to see the passages he had heard sung tonight in Handel's Messiah. Isaiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, Luke. Ah, and here we are, John. He found John 1 and began to read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. 
there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. David paused a moment and thought about what that meant. The light, Jesus, came into the world, and the world didn't understand him. It took a while for the world to begin to understand him. And the world began to understand the light from the voices of those who told his story. And that was all he asked his followers to do. Simply tell his story. He read another passage further down. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was that voice. And that voice was silenced by evil men who didn't want to hear what he had to say. But even when John was killed, others rose up to keep speaking about the light, and all the light represents. The twelve disciples started a movement that turned the world upside down. They spoke boldly and unashamedly about Messiah, and the world persecuted them for it. But other voices rose up and have been rising up for more than 1,700 years to speak boldly about the light of the world, Messiah. Messiah. Handel's is yet another voice risen to speak about Messiah through music, and the world has sought to silence that voice. David smiled as he thought to himself, What the world doesn't understand is that the voice will never be silenced. Truth cannot be held back. It always will be victorious if spoken boldly. God has given me a platform and a voice to speak the truth, and I intend to use it whenever I can, just like Jesus' cousin, John. John. Suddenly he thought about his cousin. I must tell John about this. He took out a fresh piece of paper, dipped his quill in the ink, and wrote a short letter. He then sealed it with wax and locked it in a metal box containing outgoing correspondence. When David blew out the candle and left the room, the rat's glowing red eyes narrowed from the open window. Looks like I'll be sailing to the colonies, the rat thought with a grimace, along with that letter. <sighs> rats, don't get me started about rats. Oui, they can be despicable. And we shall soon find out just how utterly despicable. Did somebody call me? Uh, we were talking about despicable rats. Wow. And you're just going to let that go, huh? I was showing restraint. Well, thanks for that. And hey, Nigel, I brought you something. Sort of a housewarming gift for your newsroom. Here. I say, a marshmallow? 
Or perhaps a seat cushion? <laughs> oh, by Jove, old boy! Ah, indeed, that hits the spot all right, without uh, aggravating it. Oui, then, when you get better... It'll go from a seat to a suite! <laughs> no, grab your marshmallow and scurry on over to your newsroom there, so we can hear from Nigel's nuggets. Uh, Right-o. Okay, ready? All right. We take you now to Nigel P. Monaco in the newsroom. Greetings. The focus of today's news nuggets centers on the composer mentioned in our story today. But just who was George Friedrich Handel? He were a composer. You just told us that. Shh. Max. Handel was born in 1685 in Saxony, Germany. Do that be where we get the saxophone then? Shh. Max. And while George had wanted to be a musician from a very early age, his father discouraged it, thinking there was no way music could actually bring a decent income. He even forbade George to own a musical instrument. Well, thankfully, George's mother saw things differently and made sure he became proficient in his first love, music. By the tender age of ten, he had already mastered the organ, the oboe, and, my personal favorite, the violin. By the age of twenty, he had written his first opera, and thus was now considered a Baroque composer. Not so his dad were right, then. All that music, and he was still flat Baroque? Max, Baroque is a style of music. Oh, so his music were broke. I'm surprised anybody liked it, then. No, that is not... I say, if the music ain't Baroque, don't fix it. <laughs> well, Max, it just so happens that Mr. Handel produced dozens of operas and oratorios in his lifetime, and thus made a fine living by pursuing his first love, which I dare say the maker himself gifted him to do. And that is a lesson for all of us. Quite so. So, Max, my dear boy, any more frivolity or inane commentary? Um, probably not. So you're quite finished? Um, I suppose. Then I can only respond with... With Nigel's News Nuggets, I'm Nigel P. Monaco in the newsroom. And so now, having a sweet seat and the sweet sounds of Handel... It's only fair to head over to our sweet author friend, Jenny L. Cody, for Jenny's Corner. Hey, Nigel. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure. What's going on? Well, I'm curious as to why a story about Patrick Henry would begin after a concert back in my beloved London, England. Well, it all goes back to tying in two novels together— Book four, I wrote, The Roman, the Twelve, and the King is the life of Christ told within the story of George Frederick Handel writing The Messiah, the most popular, the most famous music in all of history. Well, it debuted in London on March 23rd, 1743. Now, Patrick Henry is a kid, but that date, March 23rd, is going to be a huge future date for him because that's the date that he gave his give me liberty or give me death speech in Richmond. So as I was writing this scene for book four, I was thinking way ahead to the revolution books. And I'm like, there's got to be a connection to where I can tie these two plot lines together with this mutually shared 
date and year. And I'm like, 1743, Patrick Henry's a kid, but there's got to be some way I can connect him with this concert. So I contacted Richard Schumann, who portrays Patrick Henry at Colonial Williamsburg. And I'm like, Richard, help me here. Help me to find some connecting point. And he told me about David Henry. Now, David was a cousin to John Henry, Patrick Henry's father. And David never left Scotland, England, and he became the editor of Gentleman's Magazine, which was the most read magazine in all of England. Well, of course, it's extremely plausible and likely that a concert of this magnitude, where King George II was there, where King George II stood at the Hallelujah Chorus, which was really an incredible thing for the king to do something like this, that David would write about it, if not in the magazine, certainly to his cousin John. And so you'll see the series of events unfolding in the chapter, and then in a future chapter, a couple of chapters from now, of what is actually in that letter. But that's how it all started, with connecting the two. And, you know, it was a very poignant thing to be able to have the concert inspire a letter which will inspire young Patrick Henry, that if one voice will rise up and be bold, the world can be changed by it. And that goes for you too. That's how that whole plot line always came about. And I love to do this. I love to connect books with a plot, with an object. And the object in this case is the letter to young Patrick Henry. I say, now that is brilliant. Well done, Jenny. And with that, announcer lad, what can we look forward to in our next episode? Uh, the name is Denny. Anyway, next time, Max, Liz, and Nigel board a ship, leaving merry old England on a trip to the American colonies. And sailing along with our friends is our lamb in disguise, Clary. So we'll get to know her a little better, too. For now, well, let's just say she doesn't miss much, for she knows that aside from her friends, there's also a stalker aboard the ship. Find out who next time. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandee! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.